Steve Samsel, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. It's summer. It's hot. Um, it's good. How are you? Steve, I, I'm great. I need to know how old that shirt is. Uh, it's very oh. faded. It's a very faded shirt. It says Penn State Athletics on it. Gray with loop text. Um, it's not as old as my daughter's. Okay. Okay. I was wondering if it was, if it was as old no, as No, it's me. probably only 10 years old. Okay. All right. I have, I have a couple... 10 year old shirts uh, yeah. i have a couple my oldest are probably live united shirts that were well no they're only 10 years old too uh no it's about 10 years okay. yeah okay um this is uh shirt talk with steve uh no this is the stuff summer says podcast with steve Steve, there's not a lot of talking from us this week in the podcast because we have a wonderful guest as someone that you recently learned tonight was a former co-worker of mine, co-beat writer of mine on the Altoona Curve beat. I like the way you worded that too. Yeah, I'm sure he did too. Um, he, I'm sure he loved it. Um, Corey Gagger joins us for a great conversation. It was primarily about Corey um, and, and kind of the rap that Corey gets I think for the most part, pretty unfairly that Corey gets, he explains he probably would agree with me. Um, you know, the way he approaches the beat, it's, it's a really interesting way. It's a really good conversation. There's a ton of little nuggets in there. There's a ton of good little stories in there. Um, if you have ever listened to Corey's radio show or read one of his articles and bitched about him, just take, the next half hour and listen to this conversation and i think this will be a eye-opening conversation it's one that i've had i've had this conversation with Corey plenty of times over the years um anybody that really knows Corey has had the similar conversation but i think kind of sharing it with the masses is is a good good chance good opportunity so anything you want to add before we go ahead and do that steve nope i think you summed up good it's good listen so here you go all right Steve, today we are joined by my former beat writer, co-beat writer, Corey Geiger. Corey. Wait, your, your former co? Is that what you just said? Yes, yes. On the Altoona Curve beat in the summer of 2014. That, does that feel right, Corey? Somewhere in there. And you're getting old. I know. Holy smokes. Well, I mean, let's, we, don't, we don't have to remind you that you're getting old now. Here's the thing, though. We've had a lot of guys come through our, our Altoona Curve beat have gone on to a lot of success matt fortuna uh, did our curve internship um let's see uh, aj casavell covers major league baseball did it uh kevin fiorenzo i think who works in penn state's communications did we had a bunch of good guys come through here josh langenbacher i can't ah, vouch for that guy that guy that guy he he's he's all right he's all right no josh is a very good friend very one of the nicest people you will ever meet. Wait, um, so how 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 does the summers kids stack up in that group? Like it, very 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 good. New knows baseball, knows what to do. Uh, did did outstanding. Uh, he was no Matt Fortuna. 
Actually, the best intern we've ever had was A.J. Casavell. I love Matt. Matt's a great college football writer for The Athletic. A.J. knows his baseball, though. So, And uh, oh, Tyler King, Penn State student a couple years ago, uh, tremendous, knows his baseball. When you, when you take over a minor league beat, not that people here care about minor league baseball maybe, but you've you got to know baseball if you're going to kind of take over a minor league beat. Um, Corey, there's a very substantial Altoona uh, listening demographic. So, yes, you, are, uh, you can talk about the Altoona curve as much as you want to. All right. Um, no, uh, we, have a, we have a laundry list of things to talk about. And I, I think maybe we will hit on minor league baseball um, and maybe we'll, we'll get there eventually. But, Corey, you have been on the Penn State beat for how many years now? Uh, this will be 17. I started okay. in 2006, which actually is a key year. I'll explain that a little bit later, but I started in 06. And how the hell does a guy from Arkansas come to Central PA to cover Penn State football? Well, there you go. There's the minor league baseball. I wanted to be a big league beat writer, and uh, I covered a team in Danville, Virginia in 1998. And the Altoona Curve came about in 1999. So I, I moved here. I'd never heard of Altoona, Pennsylvania, and had no intention of staying here longer than a year or two. Uh, and then something happened on August 29th, 1999. I met this chick. And uh, uh, I used to say I'm, I'm stuck here now because she's an Altoid, and she was never going to leave because her family was here. But I love Altoona. Believe me, if there's people out there that want to make fun of Altoona for whatever reason, the, the cheese on top of the pizza, for God's sake, uh, that's fine. But I love Altoona. And Neil Riddell was the Penn State beat writer for the Mirror. And then he became the managing editor um, in 2005, 2006. And so that opened up the Penn State beat writing job at the Mirror. And uh, unfortunately, Penn, uh, Neil picked me for that. If I had not gotten the Penn State beat at the Mirror, I probably would have left Altoona at some point. At some point, I probably would not have just continued to do minor league baseball, and that would be it. Being able to cover Penn State football in such a massive national program, that that's a, a huge reason why I ended up staying in Altoona. That's interesting because, you know, we like I said, we've spent several summers when I worked, worked at the Mirror together, working together. And I've always thought of you as a baseball guy, even though you, you know, you – are known to the masses as a football guy um did did you what like you're you were you're a sports guy obviously but what was your familiarity with Penn State football what was your reason for taking on that position because at some point you have to say yeah I want to do this it's it's not just Neil putting you there type thing well having been here since 99 I knew how big Penn State football was and Kind of maybe at that point, that's a good question, Derek, because at that point, I'm just trying to make the best life for myself here that I could. And I didn't just want to be just the Altoona Curve beat writer forever. And so that's why I said getting to be able to do Penn State um, and such a huge, hugely popular program that allowed me to stay because I probably would have decided to try to go find a major league baseball. I've been offered a couple of other major league baseball jobs since my kids have been born. I have nine year old kids. And I've been offered some college football jobs around the country, including Auburn, um, uh, Ole Miss. No, it was Mississippi State. I'm sorry. Uh, did never, never wanted to go do them because my wife, like I said, my wife was never going to let me leave here. She, uh, her name's Dana. She's the greatest person I know, but she was never leaving Altoona. So, I, I do think about that a lot. Actually, that was one of the things that you and I discussed a lot 
you know, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm probably maybe not in journalism as much as I am anymore is, is that kind of conversation with that you have to have with yourself of, do I want to spend three hours every night in the summer at a ballpark? Do I want to spend a whole weekend in the fall traveling around following Penn state football? What is the itch that keeps you going? Why do you keep doing it? Well, <laughs> it's a little, if we're talking minor league baseball first, it's a little uh, selfish because I am the longest tenured minor league baseball beat writer for one team in the whole country. I've covered the curve for uh, this is 24 years, 23 seasons because the one season missed. So uh, I'd like to keep that streak going as long as possible. Now, is that a dubious streak that I'm the longest tenured minor league beat writer? Um, I'm a class 4A player. I'm not good enough to get to the big leagues. Um, but no, once I made the decision I was going to stay in Altoona, I wanted to co- I've written three curve books. Um, I'm very well associated with the curve here in Altoona. And uh, it's just be kind, of, kind of become a part of who I am. I got offered, folks, guys, about four years ago, I think we were in Indiana, three or four years ago, we were in Indiana on a Friday night for a Penn State football game, and I got a call to be a Pirates beat writer for uh, an outlet in Pittsburgh. Said he was going to offer me double the salary I was making to be a Pirates beat writer. And I said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I, my kids were probably five years old at the time. And if you knew anything about me, my favorite thing in the world is coaching my boy playing baseball. And I was not going to be a major league baseball beat writer traveling the country. Whenever I had a a son playing baseball, I was never, never going to do that. So that was probably the last opportunity that I was going to get to coach or to uh, cover a major league team. But uh, now I, my boy's in here asking me if he can have some Cheetos, by, by the way. I tell, I tell him not to interrupt the podcast. But, no, he, uh, can, he can definitely have those. See Cheetos. those baseballs in the back, background right back there? That, that's, some of those are mine, but most of those are my kids' baseballs. I was going to say, are, are any of those yours? At this Actually, point? most of them. Most of them are mine. <laughs> I, I hit two home runs in a game when I was 10 years old. There that's it is. There. There's I, that story. I We've all a, heard that one. I hit a grand slam over the fence when I was 12. That ball's in there. But my most prized possession is back there. My most prized possession, my boy was six years old. On Father's Day, he hit a three-run double to win the game for us. What an awesome story. Got the game ball. And then we went to see Field of Dreams in Pittsburgh. So that, that ball back there, that's my most prized Love possession. that. Love that story. That, you, you've told me that story before, and I, that one sends chills up the spine every, every time I hear it. Um, you know, tell them to leave the Cheetos alone. We're talking to the Crash Davis of minor league baseball beat writers. Holy cow. I, I have to tell them to leave the Cheetos alone all the time. When, when you have kids, they just want the chips. And I'm like, buddy, that's the worst thing in the world you can eat is all these <laughs> chips. Because I know I love chips. It's like my favorite food. But, uh, yeah, I look, I do take a lot of pride in the minor league baseball thing. But I'm, I'm, I'm much more known around the state and maybe – uh, uh, elsewhere for for covering Penn State football, which I absolutely have have loved and cherished most of it, um, except for a, about a year and a half period, which I think any Penn State beat, beat writer would say, let's let's try to avoid that. I'm going to try to avoid that in my next question. You came onto the beat at a time pretty much when social media wasn't really what it is today and, and, and kind of really digital media, sports media, isn't what it is today. You know, when you first came out of the beat at Penn state, it was still pretty much the paper. That was where you read it. And, and especially in Altoona, people still heavily, heavily pick up the paper. Um, you know, now that you're a, a DK, what has changed for you 
in the way you write um, and how much of that has been influenced by what's happening or doesn't happen or does happen within the program? Well, it's interesting. Just for any Penn State fan, I get this a lot. Geiger hates Penn State. Well, I, I do, obviously, of course. I just I want them to lose every game. There it is. Um, and that no, that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I have no I have nothing against I have this reputation because I'm a little bit of an outsider and I come at the Penn State coverage from a different perspective. Um, I got here, I mentioned 2006 when I started covering Penn State football. I want everybody to understand what was going on with Penn State football in 2006. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't 2005 because they went to the Orange Bowl and I would have had a great team to cover. The first Penn State team I covered had Anthony Morelli and they went eight and four. Uh, and it was a ho-hum season. And Joe did an okay job. And then in 2007, same thing, eight and four season. Joe did a ho-hum job, wasn't recruiting anymore, wasn't leaving campus. And so I tell, this, I tell it for this reason. I started covering Penn State football at the end of the Paterno era when Joe Paterno was not doing everything that he needed to do to be a great college football coach, period. If there's any Penn State fan that wants to challenge me on that, knock yourself out. James Franklin works 50 times harder than Joe Paterno did on recruiting. I, I came in during a time when Joe was the legend, he was, to be per 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 perfectly honest with you, he was phoning it in in a lot of ways at the end. And I wasn't afraid to call him on that, okay? And so I got a reputation early on as somebody that doesn't like Joe. Well, I, I was saying the same things that I think a lot of Penn State fans were saying at the time when Anthony Morelli was going eight and four, okay? And that is that Penn State football should be better than this. The expectation should be higher than this. The expectation should be that your head coach is out recruiting. And so what happened was this reputation got attached to me early on because I was not afraid to call any of this stuff out on Joe. And a lot of people don't do that. There are really only two columnists in the entire state that cover Penn State as a beat, and that's Dave Jones and Neil Riddell. That's it. For a size of beat that Penn State is, 100 beat writers and TV reporters, two cover them as a, as a columnist, meaning opinions. Now, a lot of the other beat writers will write columns, but I kind of came along and I was, I was a third columnist. Now, Donnie Collins does a good job. He writes columns, but he's more of a traditional news writer. And every Rich Scarcello, a lot of great beat writers, but they're not traditional columnists like a Ron Cook would be, like a Gene Collier would be. I'm really more of the mold of kind of a columnist. And so, again, I know I'm kind of long-winded here, but when you add in all those factors, and I came in in 2006, as opposed to 2005, maybe if I'd have started in 05, it'd have been different. But I, what I saw the Penn State football program being in 2006 and what it could be, um, look, it, it was jarring to me from an outsider perspective that there weren't higher expectations and that everybody just seemed to be okay with going eight and four because you had a legendary coach. Corey, in terms of, you, you talked a little bit, alluded to what fans think. I'm curious in terms of Penn State media folks, right? The, the sports information folks, whatever else, what, what's your reputation there, do you think? Or how do, what do they hear from the media as opposed to what fans, how they consume and what they hear from the media? How, how is that different or how is that alike? It is interesting because a lot of people on the Penn State beat have to kiss the ring. They just do. They work at a website where their advertising might depend on Penn State. 
the their diehard fans, their subscribers depend heavily on being Penn State fans. And die, generally speaking, generally speaking, diehard Penn State fans don't want their team criticized a whole lot. They want maybe the rose-colored glass, blue-colored glasses kind of thing. And they certainly didn't want Joe criticized. I didn't work for one of those outlets. I worked for a boss in Neil Riddell who was not afraid to criticize Penn State, and nor was I afraid to criticize Penn State. So I don't have to kiss the ring. I don't live in State College. I don't, I don't have to be around all the people at Penn State University that, that might get angry if I criticize them. And that's a good thing. The 45-minute buffer that I have between Altoona and State College uh, is a great thing. Um, because I, I can be honest and I can write the truth. And if I criticize too many people, I'm not going to lose my job because advertisers got upset or so on and so forth. However, I will share one story. And this is a story that uh, it was very difficult for me. Uh, I, I lost my, okay, so during the pandemic, before the pandemic, I got offered a job to be the Penn State beat writer for Sports Illustrated the job that Mark Wogan-Rich currently has now. I got offered that job. Um, salary was negotiated. I was expecting the materials in the mail. Um, I'd let the folks at the Altoona Mirror know I was going to be leaving. There was not going to be a curve season that year because of COVID. And at that point, we really didn't know if there was going to be a Penn State season. And then about a week later, I'd not heard anything. And I got an email back from the guy after I'd responded. I said, hey, what's going on here? Uh, you know, when, when am I going to start? And the email said, the last part of our process in hiring was to check with the sports information folks at Penn State to kind of get an okay, a clearance kind of thing. And the word came back to Sports Illustrated that I was too controversial. From, and that came from within someone in Penn State sports information or administration or whatever. Um, so I lost a very high paying national job because my reputation was that I was too critical of Penn state. Now, from a journalism standpoint, the fact that sports illustrated even cared what somebody thought was horseshit. Right. A journalism institution as sports illustrated needing an approval from sports information folks is bullshit to the highest capacity. Okay. That shouldn't come into play in any way, shape, or form, what anybody at Penn State thinks of me in terms of, but, and I don't want anybody to take this wrong way, Mark Wogenrich is a really good friend of mine. He has done a tremendous job at Sports Illustrated, which is now SI, or Fan Nation at SI.com. He's on my radio show a lot. Um, they made a great hire in Mark, and I, and I love Mark, and he's tremendous. But the fact that they didn't hire me because I was too controversial, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, it, it showed me what Sports Illustrated was looking for in their hiring process. And so, yeah, I had to deal with the repercussions of being pretty critical of Penn State for 15 years. Um, if, if, if indeed, like I said earlier, if you, if you kiss the ring, you know, and you have, to, you have to watch what you say, watch what you write, so that you don't tick off the wrong people. There, there, that is real. That is a real component of life. It's a real component of every job, and, and, and I got caught up in it with, uh, with the sports tools. And there might be Penn State fans listening to this, Darren and, and Steve, that say, I hate Geiger. Geiger hates Penn State, and they're laughing. <laughs> hey, good for you. I didn't want you to come because you, you got screwed over because you deserve I didn't deserve it. I've always told the truth about Penn State. 
as, as I've seen it. And so um, my beef with that whole thing is that Sports Illustrated lost all credibility in my mind. If that's the way they were going to go about their hiring process, uh, then to hell with them. Do you have a sense, be, be, having covered college football for years and, and, and knowing some other people around the country, how much the ring kissing is prevalent other places or yes. is the skin thinner at Penn State than other places? Well, Ben State's so big. We, we have to talk about, we have to separate just the haves and the have-nots. I mean, I can't, I don't know what it's like at Bowling Green or Central Michigan or whatever, but there are 15, 20 schools in this country that control college football from a, a brand standpoint. And certainly Penn State is one of them. And the Penn, Penn State fan base is enormous. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that, I do think that, and I'll be careful with what I say here because I do have a lot of Penn State friends on the beat. Um, a large percentage of them went to Penn State. A large percentage of them may have been huge Penn State fans growing up at the time and or huge Penn State fans while they were in college. And while they might be great journalists now, and a lot of them are, um, I've often wondered if there's a little bit of, well, you know, am I going to hold back on certain things because I have connections here? And maybe I want a job at Penn State. Maybe I want to be a teacher at Penn State. Maybe I am a teacher at Penn State. Maybe I know people who are teachers at Penn State. I'd better maybe be a little too care, a little careful how much I'm, I'm critical because it might come back and impact me. Well, I, don't, I just don't believe in any of that stuff. I, I just don't. And it costs me with the Sports Illustrated job because there are realities in life. But I do think that when you're talking about a massive, a massive beat, a lot of which has extensive Penn State ties, either within their own family or what have you. Um, I do think it can cloud judgment to a degree. And yes, I do think that thing, that sort of thing probably happens at major programs around the country. You look at Kirk Herbstreit, Kirk Herbstreit was forced to move away from Columbus because didn't he get death threats, Steve? Um, people thought he was too critical of, of Ohio State. I've gotten death threats. Um, so it, it's, that's just the reality when you're dealing with sports fans. So let me, let me ask you this. The, the one thing I've always enjoyed about you is you have always told it like it is, whether I want to hear it or not, that's, you've always told it like it is. Do you think going back to kind of what you were saying about Penn Staters and things like that, do you think if you didn't have your radio show and people heard your Southern draw and knew you were from Arkansas and you had a Penn State degree, but you approached your beat the same way that you do now, do you think you would kind of get the rap that you get? No, I do not. Okay. I mean, yes, I do think that. I'm sorry. I, I, do, yeah. I do believe that. I am an outsider. I've, I've heard from thousands of people go back to Arkansas. That's fine. Okay. But, but that's a great question. I don't think I've, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question, but I do think that's part of it. Because here, here's the scenario I like to think about, guys. Okay. Say, say you're in a family and you got a screw up brother or sister, okay? Your screw up brother or sister. And the, the people in the family might criticize the sibling for doing something, okay? And everybody in the family might know and, and have their say at times. But as soon as the neighbor across the street says anything about your brother or sister, what does the family do? Nice. They form a bond, they get defensive, who the hell are you to talk about my family member? Even though you're really saying the exact same thing that those family members might say. And so I do think, and I have always felt like there is an element of that, that because I'm an outsider, 
if I say something about Joe Paterno, I'm probably criticizing a lot of things that Penn State fans in their own living room were criticizing Joe. How in the world could Joe be allowed to not recruit any longer? Well, if I write it and people get pissed, you're saying the same thing in your living room, but it's the don't shoot the messenger thing. People want to shoot the messenger. And the last thing I'll add on this component of it is, is this. I am a huge Syracuse basketball fan, have been for 35 years, uh, 40, 40 years. All right? I'm very critical of Jim Beheim. I, I root for one team in this world anymore, and that's Syracuse basketball. Do I think Jim Beheim's a great coach? A lot of times I don't. So what, is that, what should that tell you about me? I'm not just picking a bone with Joe Paterno or James Franklin or anybody else just to, I have high, I expect high, high expectations, high results. I'll be watching a Syracuse basketball game. Jim Beheim will F it up and I'll say, it's time for you to retire. Okay. Cause and that's me as a fan. That's just who I am. So people that think, oh, Geiger hates Penn state. Actually what I hate is accepting mediocrity. That, that's probably what I hate. And as a Syracuse basketball fan, with a head coach who it's time to go because the program has slipped out of his control. Uh, hey, I think as a fan, I have the right to say that. But if I'm a journalist and I write it and a longtime Syracuse basketball fan takes exception, you see what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, I can confirm that you have said that type of language during Syracuse basketball games. So um, he's not joking. He's not making that story up. Um, let's move in Wait, I have on. one. I have oh, one sports. Oh, I have a, a family question, and it, it's it's kind of a sports media family question. I'm curious about the beat in terms of. You didn't say soft, but from the outside, and I know a lot of the people like it's not it's not the hardest hitting beat in the world, Penn State football, from the media standpoint. But I'm curious. It feels like sometimes when someone in the media room asks the question, and it gets passed on or there's a there's a follow-up wanting the room itself doesn't circle around each other and follow up and ask that question and help each other out is that a generalization on my part or I, it just feels like there's there are times in the in recent years and in, in whenever you've been since you've been on the beat where people say something the coach will answer somebody will answer and there's an obvious follow-up or there was an evasion there and somebody should help out but they're focused on their own thing and they're not going to circle around the family and help the media family out. They're going to help themselves if at all. Is that fair or am I wrong? No, I think you're absolutely right. Actually, Steve, um, if you have a hundred people in the media room, how many of those hundred even want to ask a question? Okay. And then how many of those hundred are going to ask anything other than a softball? Hey, didn't he look great today? And then how many of those hundred are comfortable and confident enough to ask something biting or, or pointed if necessary. As those numbers dwindle, traditionally, again, I'm going on 17 years here, there have been give or take 10 people in the room that would ask those questions. Those would be Dave Jones, Neil Riddell, Mark Brennan, Mark Wogenrich, Josh Moyer, Audrey Snyder, um, Ben Jones would occasionally, although that kind of changed a little bit at, toward the end with Ben. And I mean, you're, you're, you're you know, and who, who's the guy that is the Eagles beat writer, Jeff, uh, that used to do Penn State beat 
Jeff, um, it, it, the name will elude me, but he did the Penn State beat for a year uh, in 08, and he was great. My point is there are only eight, ten people in the room that even that even feel like it's their responsibility. Rich Scarcella certainly is one of them that feel it's their responsibility to ask those kinds of questions, Steve. I, and I was one of them. And so what happens is if you've already asked a question and then something else comes up, you may not get the microphone back. You may not feel like, you know, they, they've got to go through the rest of the room or what have you. So generally if one of those eight or 10 people didn't ask the question, it, it just wasn't going to get asked because again, I, we, look, we all have quotas. We all have stories we've got to write. Not everybody's looking for, to write, pointed commentary or analysis people are looking to write their player features i mean if a player is on a conference call on a tuesday or wednesday and you look in the media over the next two or three days you're going to see 25 stories on that player is it because that player did anything all that interesting or did he just was on a conference call and everybody's got to write penn state stories so that was the easiest story to write so that kind of thing does happen okay thanks um okay moving on Fairly quickly, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I have your season predictions article open right now. I've read through it. Where do you think this team is headed this year? And then in, let's say, five years, where, where do you think we're going? I've got Penn State at seven and five this year. They were seven and five last year in the regular season, and they lost two All-Americans in Brisker and Evacati and Jahan Dotson and had eight guys drafted. So I'm having a hard time being convinced that a team that had eight players drafted would be better than what they were last year. So I went with seven and five. If the offensive line and the running game are significantly better, and I mean light years better, then they could absolutely win nine games. That's not asking for much, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that's the question every year, the, the offensive line. But, but to be honest with you, I have a lot of questions about Mike Yersich and the scheme and the system. Is he set up? Is he the right fit for the Big Ten? because I didn't see a physical demanding presence up, up front. Okay, so that's this year, seven and five. I think Drew Aller's got to get some experience this year. Maybe he starts the bowl game, but he's got to get some experience. If he stays, if Nick Singleton stays, I think they make a big stride next year, maybe nine wins, maybe 10 wins next year. But they go to Ohio State next year, and I've always said, no matter how, what we're trying to predict with Penn State, you have to see where the Ohio State game is, because it's not likely they're going to go to Columbus and win. If it's like it was in 2016, Ohio State comes here, then yes, you have a shot. So I think 7-5 this year, maybe 9-10 wins next year. I think 2024 could be a, a chance for them to get to the playoff. And depending on the rest of the country, possibly win a national title. You'd, talk, you'd be talking about Drew Aller would be in his second full season as a starting quarterback. Nick Singleton would be in his second full season as a starting tailback. They are recruiting very well uh, offensively and defensively. So I, I think that uh, a little bit of a speed bump this year, maybe rebuilding. If, if you can keep Drew Aller, if you can keep Nick Singleton, you keep them out of the transfer portal. If somebody else doesn't come offer them $2 million in NIL money, which I don't think Penn State has to match, these are the scenarios. If they can keep all that in play, I, I would say 2024 would be the kind of year that Penn State, because Ohio State comes to Penn State that year. And then once we get, we, when you say five years, Darren, now we're talking a 12-team college football playoff. At that point, I do believe Penn State can make the playoff five times a decade. In fact, it should. If Penn State's not making four or five, if they're not finishing in the top 12 four or five times a decade, then I think something is probably amiss 
Now, if there's Steven, if they're... I have that conversation a lot. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, we have that conversation a lot. That at some point, there's you got to get over that hump, and if that becomes an opening up point, that hump has to have like you, that's got to be one of the humps that you get over every every other year. You need to be competing for something of Absolutely. that level, and I th- and I think they can. Uh, you know, we could go on and on about all kinds of facets. I think James Franklin is a tremendous, tremendous football coach for six days and 21 hours a week. I think he's got a lot of work for the three hours on Saturday to become a better game day coach. And that holds Penn State back. Um, so for all the things that James Franklin does extremely well, if he can take the step to become a better game day coach, then, then that's, that's a, an avenue for them to take a big step. That makes sense. Um, I don't have much else. Um, I maybe have one lingering question. Um, but other than that, Steve, do you have anything? I got one, and then you can ask the last one since okay. you're the number one. Is there a story, Corey, or that you haven't written or or want to tell yourself, or one on the beat in the past, say in the James Franklin era, that 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 hasn't been told or written about that you think should? I want to. Know, that's a great question. Uh, I, I, there's not necessarily one that I can. Well, I, I guess right now is why. Why did Sandy Barber give him a 10-year contract? I'd like to know what promises were made in September and early October with regards to those contract negotiations when Penn State was a hot when was playing very well and James Franklin was a hot commodity. And there was a very, very real chance that he could leave for USC or LSU in late September, early October. But by the time the season ended, James Franklin was not going anywhere. Nobody wanted him. So if you're going to make promises in September or October, shouldn't you have the ability to rescind what you, what you had promised when the coach is, when the coach is not no longer a hot commodity to me, I think Sandy Barber got played. I think she got caught up in knowing she was going to retire. This was her last big deal. She wanted to keep James there. And instead of just, I mean, to give him a 10 year contract is so patently absurd it's, it's beyond comprehension. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's, it's beyond comprehension. A guy that's 11 and 11 over the last two years and had four years left on his contract, why did the AD, whatever she promised him when they were undefeated, when the season collapsed and he had no more leverage, he had no more leverage, a smart business person would have gone back to those negotiations and said, hey, look, <laughs> you know, uh, we, can't, we can't stick with, with this because – Things have changed. Things change in business negotiations. So would that have been a shitty thing for Sandy Barber to do? Maybe. But James Franklin's got a 10-year contract. And quite frankly, I think he should have been coaching for his job over the next year or two. Brian, you're going back to what fans say. You're probably not alone in, in saying I'm that. Absolutely right? not, so. I'm absolutely not alone in saying that. I guarantee you. I, I have a very good finger on the pulse of what fans say, including about me, which is why I know a lot of Penn State fans think I hate them. And I don't. But I have a good – I mean, when it comes to Sean Clifford and James Franklin specifically, I, I'm very well aware of, of how the fan base feels about those two. Thanks. All right, my last question is a very softball. Besides Penn State football include, and covering the Altoona curve, Corey, you are known for one other thing, and that is playing against Derek Fisher in a basketball game? Did you dunk on him? Did you beat him? What is the story? I've heard many iterations at this point. 
Oh man, that's great. I had to, I had to bring it up. I brought it up earlier, but I had to. Other than those baseballs in the background back there that I, uh, that I had hit some home. So when I was like in 10th grade for a a Saturday morning JV basketball game, I'm from near Little Rock, Arkansas and Derek Fisher, the Lakers point guard who I went to college with at Arkansas Little Rock. He, he played for a team down the road, an awesome state powerhouse and their coach was good friends with our coach. So we scrimmaged them a lot in JV and uh, 10th grade games, that kind of stuff. So I scored five points on Derek Fisher is the bottom line. We lost by 30, but uh, I could score for a 5'8 white point guard. I I couldn't shoot, but you get me in the lane, man. I could score. So I scored five points on Derek. We lost by 30, Uh, but I love Derek Fisher. That's a a good dude. Um, You've got a ton of stuff to plug because you are one of the busiest man in show show business could you plug all of your stuff i plug that my i love playing baseball with my son that's what that's what (laughs) i plug when we get off here we're gonna go we were pitching earlier we're gonna go hit a little bit we got fall ball starting no uh uh because here's the thing when you're a parent none of what you do matters i'll tell my kids hey daddy's on the radio (laughs) so i gotta do a podcast so what i don't care hey daddy was on with colin coward the other day who's that Kids will put you in your place immediately. So I host a daily radio show in Altoona from four to five. I have three podcasts on DK Pittsburgh sports, including my favorite, which is a memory lane podcast where I catch up with former Pittsburgh stars. That's a blast. I have, I have listened to a couple episodes. Oh, those I guys, I mean, you know, Rocky Blyer, Jack Wilson, Freddie St. Dick Grove. I mean, that, I really enjoy doing that because to be perfectly honest with you, if I had my druthers, I, I, even with my Southern drawl and my bad voice, I, I, I like doing radio more than anything else. So the podcasts are a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I'm sure we'll see you, see you at some point this season. Usually I do not hate Penn State. I, that, I, Corey Geiger <laughs> hates Penn State. You heard it here. He 100% hates Penn State. <laughs> but you know what's funny? Let me, let me close this. Pitt fans think I love Penn State. <laughs> That's true. That is Which, true. That's absolutely that true. That is true. You, I, I have Penn read through State, the Twitter mentions. Penn State fans think I love Pitt. I'll blast Pat Narduzzi left and right. But it's a here's the thing. And what we do, if you've got the fans convinced that you hate their team, you're probably doing something right. It's truth. Thank you, Corey, very much. Thank you, Corey. Thanks, guys.